If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25, we're continuing along in our series in the book of Exodus called The Tabernacle. Just by way of reminder, if you haven't been with us, I know uh, there are some that have been traveling or sick. Uh, The tabernacle and the instructions for it were given to Moses as he went up Mount Sinai at the Lord's invitation. And for 40 days, these plans were being revealed to him. And so when I begin the reading for today, that is the context of what's taking place. Last week, we studied one of the pieces of furnishings in the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant. And today's furniture is the table of the showbread. So I invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. I'll be reading verses 23 through 30 of Exodus chapter 25. You are to construct a table of acacia wood, 36 inches long, 18 inches wide, and 27 inches high. Overlay it with pure gold and make a gold molding around it. Make a three-inch frame all around it and make a gold molding for it all around its frame. Make four gold rings for it and attach the rings to the four corners at its four legs. The rings should be next to the frame as holders for the poles to carry the table. Make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold and the table can be carried by them. You are also to make its plates and cups, as well as its pitchers and bowls for pouring drink offerings. Make them out of pure gold. Put the bread of the presence on the table before me at all times. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you for standing in honor of it. Would you please be seated? Will you bow your head in prayer with me this morning? Our Heavenly Father, we do come this morning to receive the food from your Holy Word. Lord, I pray that as I preach, that the table would be set, and that all would come to the bread of life. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you were here last Sunday and you've followed along in the outline, I encourage you to follow along in this week's outline, which has a very similar structure. We're going to consider, first of all this morning, the physical features of this table. Pretty obvious as we've read through it together, but just want to make a few passing comments before we get to the more important aspect of the table of showbread, which is its significance. So again, I know, back by popular demand, the tape measure right? Last week, it helps me. I'm very visual, uh, you know, any way that we can learn together. So this, in remembrance of me, the Lord's Supper table has been a good kind of way of comparison. So 36 inches, the table of showbread it was. So about three quarters of the length of this Lord's Supper table. Now, that was two cubits. I explained that last week, how a cubit was about 18 inches. It's the distance between the tip of your finger and the the end of your forearm there. And so it was one cubit in width, which is the exact width of this Lord's Supper table. So you get an idea. This wasn't a very big table we're talking about. And then I also showed you last week, this table is about 30 inches tall. And so 27 inches is just short of the height of this table. 
Now, it would be interesting to note that there was a a molding around this as well. And the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, goes ahead and gives us three inches. In the ESV or some other translations you might have in front of you, it would say a hand breadth. Okay, so something like three to four inches was the molding or the collar around it. And there's debate. Was it, you know, horizontal coming off the edge? Was it diagonal, kind of like your crown molding? Or was it vertical? And in all likelihood, it was probably vertical to keep things from slipping and sliding or being knocked off of the table. So a little bit of the size, about the same height, is exactly the same height as the Ark of the Covenant, um, and not a very big table. Now, if you skip down to verse 29 in your text, you will notice uh, that there were pitchers and bowls for drink offerings. In the ESV, it uses the word flagons. I just love that word, flagon, like you don't get to use that word all that often, unless you're a fan of the court jester, anybody? The court jester with the late Angela Lansbury and Danny Kay. Just remember, if you ever watch it, that the flagon with the dragon has the pellet with the poison. That's the important thing to remember. But flagons, pitchers that had drink offerings in them. And then verse 30 notes the bread of the presence. The bread of the presence, which will constitute the majority of what is preached about today. But go back to a few verses that I skipped in verses 26 through 28. And take note that like the Ark of the Covenant, there were rings and poles for carrying this table, which reminds us that the entire tabernacle and all of its furnishings were designed to be portable. They were designed to be movable through the wilderness. And with that in mind, I thought it would be good for those who haven't been with us the last week or so to just review that important aspect of what we're studying, that this is a portable place for the glory of God, the presence of God to dwell. And as a visual aid, I thought it would be nice to share with you a video that I discovered in my Bible software, Logos Bible software, about the tabernacle. It's just two minutes long, but I think it will be helpful, again, for those of you who are starting to pick up on these things. The Tabernacle. In Exodus 25, 8 through 9, God spoke to Moses, saying, Make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell in the midst of them, according to all that I show you, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its equipment. And so you will do. This portable temple was built in the wilderness by the Israelites, circa 1450 B.C., after they were freed from Egyptian slavery. Moses was given specific instructions regarding the construction of the tabernacle in Exodus 26. The tent itself sat within a curtained enclosure that was supported by pillars. This courtyard was about a quarter of the size of an American football field. Several slaughtering tables stood within the court of the tabernacle, along with the bronze laver and the bronze altar. The tabernacle itself was a rectangular-shaped structure. Its roof consisted of multiple layers of animal skins and linens. An outer covering of tachash skin, which may have been porpoise, beaver, or a type of leather. A covering of ram skin dyed red. A curtain of goat's hair. And finally, a curtain of fine linen. The interior of the tabernacle was divided into two sections that housed a number of sacred objects. The first section, the holy place, contained the table of showbread, the lampstand, and the altar of incense. 
Beyond a veil lay the Holy of Holies, or the Most Holy Place, which housed the Ark of the Covenant. The tabernacle was the first temple dedicated to God and the first resting place of the Ark of the Covenant. It served as a place of worship and sacrifices during the Israelites' 40 years in the desert and their subsequent conquest of the land of Canaan. This transportable house of worship was eventually replaced by a more permanent structure, King Solomon's Temple. All right, so if you can't make it to Lancaster, that might have been the next best thing, all right? So we, we get to see and kind of visualize the size, the features, the portability. Maybe you saw as you were looking into the holy place where the table would have been on the right-hand side as the priest would have entered the holy place. And in all likelihood, if you can see it in your mind's eye, it was glimmering with the glow of the lampstand on the left-hand side as all of its utensils and all of its uh, gold ornamentation glimmered and danced in the light. So hopefully that video helps you get a kind of an overarching aspect of this and just remember that when the, when the tabernacle would go, when the, the people of Israel would move, the tabernacle would be in the center of their camp. And then the people would, would camp all around it in order of Numbers chapter 2. It lays out how the camp would have been made. And so we see this uh, portable place where the glory of God would dwell. Now, if you followed last week, we talked about the, uh, the physical features, and then we switched to the significance of the ark. So this week in your outline, some of you students, your kids are there, you're, they're writing it in. Now, I know what the next one is. It's the significance, the significance of the table of showbread. Now, before we dive into the aspects of significance, I wanted to give us some interpretive principles to help us. Because last week we found and we were discovering a a number of very important connections with the Ark of the Covenant in the New Testament and aspects of it, like the the caporet, uh, the atonement seat, the mercy seat, all of these things that were later explained in the New Testament that gave us a greater depth of significance and symbolism in the Ark of the Covenant. So the question is, as we're looking at these pieces of furniture, how far can we go? Like, to what extent can we find interpretive uh, uh, significance in the physical features? And I just want to give this word of caution or just this word of advice that Philip Ryken gives in his commentary. He gives two helpful points when we're interpreting these physical furnishings of the tabernacle. One is use the New Testament as a key to unlocking the Old Testament. Use the New Testament as the key to unlock the Old Testament. So, for example, um, one of the wild interpretations out there uh, was not, it's actually not a wild interpretation, it's actually very believable, is this idea of the acacia wood covered in gold. Okay, I, I read some commentators that are good, godly Christians, and they were saying, well, you know, the, the Ark of the Covenant was made out of acacia wood. Okay, I thought that was a fire alarm, but thankfully that was just somebody's phone. So praise the Lord, we can keep going. All right, so the acacia wood um, would have been, for example, in this person's mind, representative of the Lord Jesus's human nature. And then the fact that it was covered in gold was representative of his divine nature, which is an interesting thing to note because we do know from the New Testament that Jesus was one person but had two natures. He was fully human and fully God. And so you're kind of tempted to kind of track with this interpretation. But then you begin to wonder, 
Well, what about the table? The table was also made of acacia wood and gold. Was it a symbol of Christ's uh, divinity and humanity as well? What about the poles? All of the carrying poles were of the same. And so it kind of began, was, was Jesus being figured in all of these things? In all likelihood, not. And so if we went to the New Testament, we would never find that that interpretation about the ark or about the table is there. And so we would be tempted to kind of pump the brakes and say, interesting, but probably not so. Then we can look at another key to interpreting the Old Testament details of the tabernacle, which is to study the way that those details were used in the Old Testament itself. When something from the Old Testament does have symbolic meaning, we then can consider how it possibly is connected to Christ and in ways the New Testament might explain it. So we saw this as an example with the Ark of the Covenant with the cherubim. I talked about that last week, how the two cherubim uh, were clearly representative of God's glorious throne in heaven. And the Old Testament itself refers to God as enthroned above the cherubim. Do you remember that from last week when we studied Psalm 99? And so we are finding it not only in the New Testament, excuse me, in the Old Testament, but also in the New. And so it kind of helps confirm our interpretation and our understanding of these furnishings. The same was true of the atonement cover, the caporet, the blood that was shed on the day of atonement that was sprinkled on that mercy seat is later interpreted for us in the New Testament to help us make these connections. So we always want scripture to interpret scripture. And as Riken puts it, he says, we should not read into the Old Testament what we are not able to read out of the Old Testament. I think that's a really neat way of putting it. Don't read something into the Old Testament that you couldn't actually find there to begin with. Read it out of the Old Testament as well. So with those principles in our minds, I'd like us to consider the significance of the table of showbread. And the one thing that was clearly symbolic was the bread of the presence. In fact, one of the main reasons there was a table at all was to provide a place for the putting out of the bread into God's presence. Verse 30 tells us there was to be bread on the table continually. Later in the Old Testament, the table was referred to itself as the table for the bread of the presence. That was what it was intended use was for, was for placing out this bread or the golden table on which was the bread of the presence. And the bread had significance in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. So as we consider the bread of the presence, or as it's often called, the showbread, let me tell you two things that I think are significant about the bread that was placed on this table. One, it served as a reminder of God's provision every time they prepared the bread. Every time the bread was set on the table, it served as a reminder of God's provision. And secondly, the bread of the presence served as a reminder of God's presence among his people. Every time the priests would eat the bread and in all likelihood would drink the wine from the flagons. There is some discussion about whether or not the priests would drink from the pitchers of wine. But as they ate the bread, it would remind them of God's presence among his people. So let's consider those two aspects. First of all, God's provision. 
It probably goes without saying, but I want to say it anyway. The bread was not there for the people or the priests to provide food for God. It was there to remind them of what God had provided for them. We know from scripture that God is self-existent, that God is self-sustaining. Paul told the Athenians that God did not have any need to be served by human hands. God does not need food. So this rules out the idea that the bread was being put there, being baked and prepared for God himself to enjoy or to be sustained by. That would have been an idolatrous view, wouldn't it? It would have put God as being more in our image than the other way around. God has no need of food. The bread was to be consumed by the priests. And its continual replenishment and its constant presence would have undoubtedly remind them of how God had sustained them with manna when they came out of Egypt and had nothing to eat in the wilderness. Constantly there, constantly prepared, it would have reminded them of this. If you have your Bibles and you want to flip over to Leviticus 24, we find out a little bit more about the bread of the presence in Leviticus 24, verses 5 through 9. You can follow along on the screen as well as I read. About this bread we are told, You shall take fine flour and bake twelve loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. Now, for all of you dad joke lovers out there, I hope you will appreciate this one. Put a little thought into this, so I hope you like it. Even the weekly ritual of placing freshly prepared bread on the table in the holy place had hints of the Israelite manna baked right into it. All right. Even putting it out every week had hints of manna baked into the recipe. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, on the day before the Sabbath, the bread for the table would be prepared fresh. If you look closely at the recipe, it calls for two tenths of an ephah of fine flour. Now, since you don't have an ephah measurement in your kitchen, let's look and find out what we're talking about. In Leviticus chapter, excuse me, Exodus chapter 16 and verse 36, we are told that an omer is the tenth part of an ephah. So two tenths of an ephah would be equal to how many omers? Two. Okay, I've got three of you with me. Let's try that again. So a tenth part of an ephah is equal to an omer. If when they bake the bread, each loaf has two tenths of an ephah, how many omers does it have? Two. Now we're there. Okay. So now track with me and see what they would do before the Sabbath, on the day before the Sabbath, every time they were to go out and collect the manna. Do you see in Exodus 16, verse 22, how many omers they would collect? On the sixth day, 
they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. So whether or not this is an exact connection or not, I think that it would have probably reminded those first generation people that had been there collecting extra on the, the day before the Sabbath, they would have gathered two omers. And then every time they went to go and bake a loaf of the bread, they were using two omers as the measurement of the flour. It was a little subtle reminder of the manna that God had provided, even the amount of flour. Although the bread of presence was only to be eaten weekly, its special role was to remind the priests and the people that Yahweh was the one who provided for and continuously provides for them daily, just like he did with manna from heaven. I really love what the Net Bible Notes says about the bread of the presence. It says, quote, It was to be a standing acknowledgement that Yahweh was the giver of daily bread. It was called the presence bread because it was set out in God's presence. The theology of this is that God provides. And the practice of this is that the people must provide constant thanks to God. So if the ark speaks of Communion through atonement. I think that is a fantastic little phrase to remember of the ark. The table speaks of dedicatory gratitude. If the ark is about communion through atonement, the table is about dedicatory, dedicating thanksgiving to God for his provision. We studied this in our adult Bible fellowships today as we looked at the model prayer, the Lord's prayer. And Jesus taught us to pray, give us today our daily bread. He was teaching us that God meets our daily needs. And the bread at the tabernacle was representative of the same thing. It stood for God's provision. So by way of application for your own heart today, as we think about this special bread, I encourage you to reflect on what God provides for you every day. Maybe make a note in your outline. Go home today and consider, Lord, how have you provided for me? First and perhaps most obviously, you could thank God for the food he provides to sustain you. The clothes that you have on your back, a roof over your head, family, friends, the health you enjoy in whatever relative measure you have, every single thing we have comes from God's hand. The psalmist said in Psalm 111, he provides food for those who fear him. and He remembers his covenant forever. So Leonardtown Baptist Church, the table of showbread is about dedicatory gratitude. Dedicate your thankfulness to God in prayer. If you're praying as Jesus taught us to pray, then you'd be placing your every need constantly before him. Our prayer guides that we have on the other side of the uh, outline today, they begin with the phrase, Lord, teach us to pray. And he taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Now, before we leave the idea of provision, because we know that God does provide our physical needs, 
we must also recognize that the greatest provision that was ever made for us was in fact also the bread of life, Jesus Christ. Moses himself said that this was the lesson from the manna in the wilderness. He interprets it for us, that the manna from heaven served a purpose to teach something. One commentator points out that when Moses looked back on all the things God had done to provide for them, Moses then said to the people, He humbled you by letting you go hungry. Then he gave you manna to eat, which you and your ancestors had not known, so that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Why did God provide his people with bread? Was it to teach them to trust him for his daily, their daily needs? Yes. But the bread had a deeper purpose. God sent manna to teach his people to feed upon the word. Placing their total dependence on his divine grace for them. At the feeding of the 5,000, we're going to look at how the New Testament kind of goes and interacts with this idea to test ourselves. Jesus, you'll remember, performed a miracle, providing for 5,000 men, not including women and children who had gathered to hear him teach. But after he provided for them physically, they thronged to him for more. You remember the crowds, they just kept following him and wanted him to do that seriously cool thing that he had done over and over and over again. Because if he kept doing it, kind of like what Moses had done in the wilderness, then all these people in the New Testament would never have to worry about working. They wouldn't have to worry about starving for lack of food. They would never have to sow their fields or reap a harvest again because Jesus could just do his thing and provide bread for them every day. And Jesus calls them out. He says in John 6, Worth reading at length from verse 26 and following. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You have a full belly and you like it. He said, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give to you. For on him, God, the father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do? Which is ironic, because he had just done one. But anyway, they said, What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The bread on the table in the tabernacle wasn't there for God to eat or to be sustained by. It was to remind the people of God 
that he was the one who had provided true bread from heaven for them to eat and for them to be sustained by. It pointed them back to the manna and it pointed them forward to the bread of life. But we also said the bread had significance in one other way. So letter B in your outline is that it signified God's presence among his people. God's presence among his people. Now, you may not know much Hebrew, but you do know one word, and that is the word for bread, lehem. It's a part, the latter part, of the name of the place where Jesus was born, Bet Lehem, the house of bread. Okay, so you know the word lehem. Well, literally in verse 30, the bread is called lehem hapanim. That is literally the bread set before the face of God. The bread set before God's face and thus bread of the presence. So the people were to understand that this bread was constantly set before the presence of God, before his face. If the tabernacle is the place where God's glory would dwell, symbolized by the Ark of the Covenant, this bread was to be set out in his presence continually. Just behind the veil, the Ark where his glory was represented and where he would dwell, there in the holy place just outside the veil, and to the left as the ark is facing it, was the table of the bread, constantly in his presence. Now, as we read in Leviticus 24, the bread was actually 12 loaves of bread in two piles of six. Now, it doesn't take a PhD in biblical theology or biblical studies to understand the 12 loaves symbolize the 12 tribes of Israel. And thus we can conclude that the symbolism of the 12 loaves meant that God's people were constantly under God's scrutiny, God's care, God's presence, his preservation for them. The needs of all 12 tribes were constantly set before God. I feel like as I was studying this week, that was the most profound aspect of my study for my own heart. The table of the showbread reminded me God's people are constantly before his face. The needs of God's people are constantly before our God, which is super comforting. Furthermore, briefly recall that there were pitchers of wine on the table which gives us this mental picture of the priest coming in on the Sabbath, eating the bread, in all likelihood drinking the wine, all in the presence of Yahweh. It would have reminded those first priests of the covenant ratification meal. Do you remember when we studied Exodus 24 just a few weeks ago, where the The leaders of Israel were invited up the mountain and they shared a meal. They ate and they drank in the presence of God. You see, there is a depth of symbolism to the Lord's Supper that goes beyond a simple connection between only the Passover. We often relate the Lord's Supper, and rightly so, to the Passover. We relate Jesus' sacrificial death to the lamb and the blood that was put over the doorposts. But was not Jesus' death also prefigured in the sacrifices of the Day of Atonement, like we studied last week? So in a similar way, that there's a greater depth of reality to our understanding of things, the unleavened bread of Passover 
and the unleavened bread of the presence. They overlap in their significance of prefiguring the Lord's Supper table, the Lord's Supper meal. There was bread and wine for them to partake of. So when we, as New Testament believers, partake of the bread and the cup, we can be reminded of the table of showbread. To remember, catch this, the nearness of God's presence to us when we partake of the Lord's Supper. Did you see it on the video? Are you capturing it in your mind's eye? How near God was when the priests would eat the bread and drink the cup. They were right there in God's presence. So by way of application, consider today, do you have, by studying the table of showbread, a greater comprehension or greater appreciation of the nearness of the presence of God especially when we partake of the Lord's Supper? The table of the showbread, patterned after a heavenly reality, teaches us to remember that the people of God are constantly before the presence of God in the form of the heavenly bread. Christ himself said, I am the bread from heaven. Christ is the bread from above after which the showbread was patterned. John Calvin writes in his Institutes of the Christian Religion about this participation in the Lord's Supper and the nearness of God's presence. And it occurs to me that it relates somewhat to what we talked about today in our adult Bible fellowship of the kingdom of God and its, um, its rule and its reign and its ex- extension over all. Listen carefully. If when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are lifted up to heaven in our hearts and in our mind's eye to seek Christ there in the glory of his kingdom, then as the symbols invite us to him in his wholeness, so under the symbol of the bread shall we be fed by his body. Under the symbol of wine, we shall separately drink his blood to enjoy him at last in his wholeness. For though he has taken his flesh away from us, he's ascended, that body has ascended into heaven, yet sits at the right hand of the Father. That is, he reigns in the Father's power and majesty and glory. This kingdom, this heavenly kingdom, is neither bounded by location in space nor circumscribed by any limits. Thus, Christ is not prevented from exerting in power and strength and is always among his own people. And he breathes his life upon them and lives in them. He sustains them, strengthens them, quickens them, keeps them unharmed as if he were present in the body. In short, he feeds his people with his own body, the the communion of which he bestows upon them by the power of his Holy Spirit. And in this manner, the body and blood of Jesus are shown forth to us in the ordinance. Brothers and sisters, the next time we partake of the Lord's Supper, I pray we will all recall the nearness of the presence of God. His nearness to the showbread was seen in Exodus 25. And every time we come to the Lord's Supper table, prepared with bread and cup upon it, 
we do so before the very face of God. So today, even though we are not partaking of the Lord's Supper, the table is set. Remember, Jesus was not speaking of physical bread when he said, I am the bread of life. The table is set today. The bread is Jesus's body, which was broken for you, for your sins. The cup symbolizes his blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. So I invite you, will you come and feast today on the bread of heaven? The bread that is continually before the presence of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus invites us all to feast on him. And so to both sinners and saints, I invite you, come today and eat of the bread of life and never be spiritually hungry again.